Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, welcome to another episode of Weeds on the Voxpedia Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Libby Nelson and Jerusalem Demsas. We are continuing with Education August. I, I, some friends of mine who work in education policy, they always find it very frustrating because their take is that like everybody has gone to school, so they think they are an expert in education policy. And so I'm excited to actually talk about a genre of school uh, that we have not gone to which is graduate school and specifically master's degree programs, which have expanded considerably in scope in recent years. And I think a lot of people, you know, don't necessarily realize this because it is still a, a minority thing. You know, the vast majority of people don't get master's degrees. But a number of people made the point to me that, you know, when we look at student loan aggregates and other things like that, that a lot of that debt is coming from master's degree programs. And in particular, a lot of the sort of troublingly debt burdened people are people coming out of master's degree programs as opposed to, you know, you go to dental school, you have a lot of loans, then you go become a dentist and it's kind of all fine. And there was this really eye-opening story in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it was a couple months ago now, I think. Uh, but it got like me and Jerusalem were like both slacking Libby right away to be like, this is fucked up. And you know, what it's about basically is like, Fancy schools, fancy master's degree programs, like not like some crazy, you know, like storefront for profit college in some town you never heard of, but like Columbia and NYU charging people incredibly large sums of money for like MFA programs that then lead to no employment prospects. And, you know, it both like it seems bad, but I also to me just obviously complicates sort of the arguments around debt relief and student loan changes where you both sort of feel sympathetic to people caught up in these situations, but also like the underlying situation is crying out for reform. You can't just say like, oh, these programs are terrible. We feel bad that people are burdened by loans, so we're going to make the loans go away. And then next year, everything just sort of continues as it is. You know, we shouldn't have people accumulating huge amounts of government-sponsored debt to get degrees that have no value, I think. That's my hot take. <laughs> Which feels like common sense, but I mean, I guess actually coming up with what to do about it would be controversial. 
So I basically lost my mind over that article because way back in the the misty uh, past of 2012, which I guess is just too recent for Weed's time machine, I covered the Obama administration's push to ensure that students at and students who had attended for-profit colleges were able to actually earn enough um, to pay back their loans. And this was just a tremendously um, controversial and also lengthy push. It basically got derailed. It was overturned by the Trump administration. But sort of the, the, the base assumption of this was like, if you're offering a program that purports to lead to some kind of job, the technical term is gainful employment in a recognized occupation, and people are not getting those jobs or they are not getting jobs that pay enough to make the debt worth it, you shouldn't be able to offer that program. At the time, there was a lot of pushback on the idea that this was sort of sector specific and, you know, why are we only looking at one kind of college or one kind of technical program and not another I would say, you know, whether an MFA leads to gainful employment in a recognized occupation is a little bit of an open question. But some of the other degree programs they're looking at are things that I would say should. Um, you know, there's something on speech and hearing pathology, which it's like, oh, yeah, you get that and you go be a speech and hearing pathologist. Um, and so it was really fascinating to see this metric that we have seen. Um, we had been perceived as generally affecting I guess the low end class status wise, uh, when I'm speaking about the institutions themselves or other low status institutions applied to some of the most prestigious institutions um, and to a different type of program and and the results. So I am thrilled to be here talking about it because I could literally talk about this for six hours. Yeah, I mean, the the article was obviously infuriating for a lot of reasons, but I also like feel like it led to a conversation on social media where people were overestimating the amount of people that this affected, like uh, I know Matt said very few people get master's degrees, but like of people who get master's degrees, our most recent data is around 800,000 master's degrees given in 2018, 2019. The majority of those are in business education and like health professions. The next ones that even register at the U.S. Department of Education are like legal profession studies. And then there's engineering. You don't even see like an en- it's like six percent is the lowest that they'll track. And like you don't even see arts or anything like that show up on it. And I think on top of that, too, like which obviously speaks a lot to like the concerns around what we think about these graduate programs. uh, You know, the Urban Institute has this research that shows that you do get actually uh, an average. There's a big premium for people who get a master's degree. It's like 25 percent increase in your salary. And so like on average, it's not like all of these master's degree programs are just like terrible and not doing anything. But there's this fundamental underlying issue at these schools, right, where like Clearly, they're using these master's programs to subsidize the overwhelming costs, not trying to raise tuition on undergraduate education or trying to raise it by less. And so it is very weird because you have this conversation about like debt cancellation, which just doesn't get at the primary core problem here, which is that like it costs increasingly a ton of money to educate people at higher education in the United States and where we don't really know how to fix it and we don't actually know exactly what the problem is in a lot of cases. And because of that, we are like trying to do these like back end fixes to try to make sure it doesn't like absolutely hinder the population's ability to, you know, wealth build or whatever it is. But like it's going to continue being a problem until you solve the core issue here. But I I do think, you know, to talk specifically about about the master's situation, which I agree, you know, you shouldn't overstate the extent to which the kind of artsy programs, the journal profile dominate. But it's that on a policy level, right, we moved at a certain point to the idea that we should finance higher education in large part, not entirely, but in large part through subsidized student loans. And then 
It turned out that it was more cost effective for the federal government to, in most cases, directly be the lender rather than to be a guarantee of loans, things like that. But so instead of saying, okay, there are, because there's a different way, right? There's a direct government provision route where you would say, there are certain kinds of higher education functions that we have decided are important. And that might be something like a traditional liberal arts college education. You would say, definitely, we want to have doctors in the country. We need medical schools. We want to have dentists in the country. We need dental schools. And then you might say at a certain point, look, there are other things that if people want to learn and they want to pay somebody to teach them, that's fine. But we are not going to go build a school to do that. One consequence of doing it with the hands off, like there will be a subsidized loan mechanism, is that there's no deliberateness around like, do we need this program? The schools themselves decide which programs they want to offer which is done as if it's a privatized system. Like, you can offer whatever you want, and then the question is, can you get students? But we've made an open-ended commitment to deliver the subsidized loan to, like, anything that qualifies as higher education. And to get your program qualified, you don't need to, like, go to, you know, the board of... There's, like, not, like, an office in the Department of Education where they look at the question, of like, does this make sense? There are these accreditization organizations, which are, like, just a self-perpetuating cartel from inside the university system. So you can spin up basically anything and then market anything to anyone and then kind of give them the lure that in the short term, at least, like it's free, right? And you not only can get loans to cover the tuition, you can get loans that help cover your living expenses. So in a steep recession, like we had for much of the uh, sort of early 21st century, it's this kind of very attractive option, right? It's like, if you don't have a great job opportunity, you want to do something that will be socially validated as like, this is an okay answer to give your parents' friends as to like, what are you doing with yourself? He's like, I'm in school, I'm doing blah, blah, blah. And like the long-term implications, we just know in life, people often don't think these things through all that well, especially when there's a lot of money to be made out of like, getting them to not think them through. Anne Helen Peterson did this great series of pieces about some different programs, but some at the University of Chicago, where basically they would take people who applied to humanities PhD programs at Chicago, which are hard to get into because University of Chicago only has so much funding for those slots. And they would tell people who didn't get in, oh, you can go do this master's degree in the humanities program. And they would kind of like imply that if you did this program and you did well, that would help you get into a top tier PhD program, which would help you get a tenure track job in the humanities as an academic. And statistically, that's just incredibly unlikely. But like people like to bet on themselves. Right. Like that's like a big part of American psychology. And when people in institutions that you trust, like institutions that have solid brand names, the University of Chicago purports to be something like loftier than a used car dealership. You know, it's not like, what what do I have to do to get you into a master's degree? Right. Like they're doing scholarship and learning and they are exploiting that reputation, not necessarily reputation that they hold with all Americans, but with the minority of Americans who might aspire to get a humanities PhD, like those people have a lot of respect for 
college professors. They think of that as like a really good thing to do with your life. And the people in that profession, if you ask them, they won't be like, yeah, I like I know people who are like electrical equipment salesmen and like they're just out there trying to make a deal, you know, like they, they stand by their product, but they're in sales. Right. But like major universities put themselves forward as like doing something high minded. And what you see in these programs is they're acting, you know, like a business. They have this opportunity to take advantage of cheap debt and get people into programs that don't make a lot of sense. And even if it's not that huge a phenomenon, I feel like it's very it's like a very broken part of the social contract. I would say like the other thing that's as we were talking, you know, people who want to get humanities PhDs and didn't get in are a pretty small niche program. But this idea that the masters are that offering master's degrees is a smart business move is something that really exploded over the last decade. And I think this is actually a, a good time to be having this conversation because we're really on the cusp of starting to see the consequences of it. Because about 10 years ago, you had two things. You had a massive recession that made a lot of people either want to hide out at school for a little longer to not have to go into the job market or who had lost their jobs and felt that they wanted to switch industries. And you had for the first time a level of broadband internet in most places that made online master's programs viable. And so in addition to sort of these smaller in-person sort of questionable tactics, there's also this like parallel explosion in online master's degrees, which often have the branding of a prestigious institution, but kind of similar to the program um, that Peterson wrote about, don't actually have the cachet within that institution or sort of in the broader society that you see with, you know, smaller and more traditional programs. And so basically what we're kind of, I think, on the verge of is a lot more people with a lot more master's degrees, a lot more debt, and a lot of institutions that are increasingly dependent on them as other kinds of support have been cut back. And I think we're on some kind of collision course in the next, if I were to predict something, I'd say in the next five or 10 years, we are going to end up with some kind of broader policy conversation about master's degrees than has been had so far. And I think also if we're trying to tease out, right, like, oh, the government should figure out what types of degrees or programs are socially utile. Like, I think that's actually really hard to do when you think about it. Like, it's really hard for the government to suss out, like, you know, oh, how is the labor market going to look in 10 years if you asked the Bill Clinton administration to do that, they likely would have like fucked it up for people like in the like, you know, in the mid aughts or whatever. Like we did not see how the technological changes would result in changes in the labor market. So I, I think it's like really difficult to ask the government to do something like that. And also, like, I think it's also hard to like say that there is no value to some of these arts degrees existing. Like there obviously should be some people doing art stuff like we enjoy art. We like film. We like books like we like going to museums and those provide value and social utility. And like there are going to be some people who end up not doing well, like the socially optimal number of people who end up being successful out of an arts program can't be 100 percent of them. Otherwise, you're not taking enough risks on people in order to try to get all the cool and good art that we all enjoy. And like you just get really standard stuff and like, you know, cultural stagnation could occur. So like it can't be that. But I also think it's like worth, you know, really teasing out the questions around like whether the government should be subsidizing this. Right. Because Often I think the conversation is around like this like burden to the people who took out these loans. But even in Anne Helen Peterson's newsletter that Matt just mentioned, while she says like it's hard for some of the people she talked to to decide whether it was worth it given the debt, 
all of them, except for a couple of people, she says, said that the, the programs they went to, they derived a lot of value from them, whether they became like smarter people, they thought they became better workers, they got something out of it. So this question of like whether or not people are getting something out of these master's programs, clearly like they think that they are, they feel that they are in some ways. And then it becomes like, what do we do with this like debt problem here? And I think that often like, you know, I think in these articles, we're reading them and these numbers just seem like astronomical, right? Someone's saying they have like $300,000 in debt or like $250,000 in debt. And that's creating a lot of big problems. But often the way that these loans actually work, if you're getting federal subsidies from it, is that you're on like income driven repayment plans, which means that like, you know, when I got out of undergrad and I had like $30,000 in like federal debt from like going to like William and Mary, which is a public school, I pay like a little over $100 a month, which is like not a massive burden. And it did not like mean a ton for me because I was able to get a job and like it was like on auto pay and it didn't matter a lot to me. And so like, you know, the issue is then like, okay, after 20, 25 years, if the rest of it gets forgiven, is it really a big deal that people were paying a couple hundred dollars a month? And I think that that ends up being a question of like, how does this debt affect people's finances outside of like, okay, you're paying a couple hundred dollars a month. I think the average is actually a little around $300 a month that people are paying um, their debt on. And I think that like, often you can solve those problems in other ways. Like people are like, oh, like this graduate debt is keeping me from homeownership. Well, like the Federal Housing Administration just passed a new rule that basically says you can't consider more than just anyone's monthly payment on their student loans when you're considering about whether or not you're qualifying them for a mortgage. So like you can clearly solve a lot of these problems without actually saying that like, oh, we need to just pay off everyone's debt right now, especially when we have programs existing where people are able to pay very low small amounts off their debt and it gets forgiven within 20, 25 years. So like, anyway, broader point here is just like these $300,000 numbers, these $400,000 numbers are often like kind of overstating the case here of what people actually are expected to pay back and how much it's actually burdening them on a monthly basis. Yeah. Although I would say like what we've seen so far from public service loan forgiveness makes what's going to happen after those 20 years a really open question um, as far as whether that debt is actually going to go away. And also, you know, if we have a lot of people with growing debt loads who are going to have it forgiven, what that's going to mean. I agree that in the short term, the top line number is not always the most significant one when it comes to student debt, especially since a lot of the people that are being written about in that context tend to still be outliers. I mean, the the average debt has gone up significantly and all the evidence shows it does have a real impact on people's lives. I also think in terms of like, there's a lot, if we're thinking about this as a policy question, there's a lot of choices between no master's degrees in anything that isn't like purely professional training exist and like the situation we have now. Um, It's very boring, which I think is why it didn't ever get much attention. But like the idea that colleges should have to disclose more information than they do about the outcomes and the prospects for students feels to me like a kind of commonsensical thing. You know, journalism is an unstable industry. I occasionally think, you know, what's my what's my plan if all this doesn't work out? And a lot of times it involves something that would probably require a more advanced degree than that I currently have, which is a bachelor's in journalism. I think I'm probably, you know, the top 0.0001% in terms of being able to find information about higher education. But, you know, if I were to say I'd like to work in a museum, like I have no idea, even as a a pretty well-informed person, what a starting salary would look like, what kind of debt I would have to take on and whether that's a, oh, that's a nice dream if I inherit, you know, millions of dollars one day and have a couple of years to throw away or if that's like a viable plan B. I think I'm in agreement that we should be getting more transparency from these colleges. But I also wonder that like the signal that the government sends when it provides you this really low interest loan 
is like much bigger than anything else in concerning whether or not you think it's like a viable opportunity to go after. Because like, I don't think anyone when they're starting an MFA program is like, I think that the 100% of people coming out of this program are going to, you know, be successful, get a book published and like make a bunch of money. I think they know it's a really high stakes industry where there's a low chance that they're going to be successful. But like, they are willing to take that risk because in the short term, like they're willing to take on that debt without, as Matt said, understanding fully what that might mean later on in life. And so I think it's like, it's hard to say that like, oh, like telling people that it's going to be risky is going to like fully change. I I, think, I I don't think you're saying this, but like, I don't think it's going to fully change a lot of what's going on here. I totally agree with that. Everybody thinks like they're going to be the one. Hell, I went into journalism as newspapers were collapsing, but everybody thinks they're going to be like the one person who beats the odds and, and, and makes it. So I, I agree with that. So, OK, so at this point about journalism, though, I, I, I want to take a break and then talk about this question of like, how should we how should we be training people? Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So being in journalism, all three of us professional journalists, like I don't think journalism school policy is the most important topic in American life, but it's something that we are in the middle of, right? Because we have been living and working in our careers through a transition in which the number of jobs in the journalism field has tended to shrink. And at the same time, graduate-level journalism programs have expanded. And to me, that is a like malign social trend separate from the debt dynamics. Like, the easiest thing in the world is to say, like, it was good enough for me, so it should be good enough for the kids these days. But, like, I think that that is true. 
Like, it's not that I knew everything from my four years in college and a bachelor's degree that I needed to be a working journalist, but I learned by working with other current working journalists. And I think that to shift the job training function, right? Like, part of the deal with college is that you are supposed to learn some skills there that are fairly generic, right? Like, how do you read a text and comment critically on it? How do you write clearly? How do you do basic quantitative reasoning? Like, what does a science experiment look like? Right. Like those are not training for specific jobs. They're general trainings that are helpful for lots and lots of different things you do. If you work in journalism, you learn things like how to write a lead, how to fact check a story, how to make the decision that you ought to forward the story to the lawyers to vet it before you run it. Right. Like it's incredibly specific. And I think it is genuinely not helpful to be taught that kind of stuff by, like, retired ex-practitioners. It is just much better to learn that from people who are doing the work in the moment but who have a little bit more experience than you because it keeps changing. Right. Like I have now like not worked at Vox.com for I don't know what it is, like 10 months. And I'm already like I'm not really sure like what's popping in Google search or like how do you guys think about those optimizations now? Like there's a lot about journalism that I do know, but there's specific aspects of it that are like now not relevant to my life. And my knowledge of that, it deteriorates exponentially because I was never like Vox's in-house expert on those things. But I worked with people who were experts and they would like tell me if I was fucking up. So I I knew something about it. But like now I don't. And I could give people like old war stories, just like I could tell you about like staying late for closing days on the American Prospect print edition. But like that has nothing to do with modern journalism. And the government through the loan program is not the only actor here, but they are shifting early career job training out of the idea of you do a low-paying job for a company and in exchange the company helps teach you what the fuck you're doing to like you pay money to a university that then like steals some of that money to subsidize the faculty's personal research interests and they are the ones who give you this kind of rudimentary training and it seems like much worse to me. Like, it it reflects a kind of, like, progressive universe bias against for-profit business entities that we have, like, stigmatized unpaid internships and shifted it into, like, negative compensation master's degree programs. And, like, I don't love unpaid internships, right? But, like, I would rather pay people zero than charge them $80,000. <laughs> like, that's horrible. Like, I, and I sincerely don't understand how people, like, live with themselves with that as their... Like, I've we paid interns at Vox because, like, we felt bad about the exploitative system. But, like, it's so much worse what they're doing. I mean, it's even worse than that, really, as the person... I think the only person on this podcast who actually did go to journalism, undergrad, but not master's, but they're not that different. There's only so much journalism you can learn. It's not only that you do that. It's that the valuable stuff that I did in journalism school was the student newspaper, which was 
nominally paid in the sense that like I think I it made like 50 cents an hour or something when you penciled it out. I got a small check for the 80 hours a week I was spending in that office um, and internships, which luckily for me, I, I, most of mine were paid. But that was really where I learn stuff. And the function of journalism school was mostly that like it brought people together to hook you up with those opportunities to learn things because you're not really learning the practical stuff in the classroom. And then when they they would try to teach the practical stuff, it's sort of the problem Matt referred to. I took an entire course on Adobe Flash, which for the young ones out there used to be how like interactive things on websites were built. And the quarter I was in that class, the iPhone was released and the iPhone did not support Flash. And Flash was like dead as a journalistic prospect in like a year and a half. I learned some interesting stuff in that class again about like how to think about audience. You know, there's some like bigger like, oh, it's good to be taught, be forced to do a project like this to make you think that's like good college stuff. But it is like the ultimate like when a university is trying to do a specific kind of job training and the way it can go horribly wrong. And like, I've never looked up what that class costs because it would, I, I, I can't think about it. And I'm sure this isn't, you know, we're talking about this in journalism because it's the field we know, but I'm sure the, the basic concept that like jobs require specific skills and the programs that try to equip people with them do kind of a hit or miss job at best on actually teaching you the stuff you need to know how to do is like not a specific industry problem. Well, and 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 you know, you think about the economic returns, right? So there are library science master's degrees that you you get if you want to go work in libraries, right? And I I don't know what that training is like, but what happens when you train future librarians in a library science master's degree is that the profits, right, like the economic surplus, goes to the university. The other way to do it, like libraries are public institutions, would be to put more money into the library with the understanding that they are going to be hiring people with bachelor's degrees who are like smart and like books and whatever, but like don't know a lot about the details of how you run a library. And that's what you are going to learn at the library. And now some libraries are tiny, right? Like, you know, small towns have libraries and they can't do that. But like a big city library employs lots of people and just like clearly could employ for low salaries entry-level people who don't have a lot of specific library science knowledge and they could be taught by the veteran librarians like and that strikes me as not just necessarily like a better way to train librarians but it's a better place to locate the economic surplus is like in the library systems rather than in the universities because what are the universities doing exactly with that, right? It's different from research scientists train by working as grad students in university labs. And the surplus there is science, right? Like, that's why we do it that way is because we're trying to generate science. But like in the library field, like we're trying to get libraries. In journalism, we're trying to do journalism. And like they do journalism at media outlets, not at journalism schools. But it's, it's worth thinking about, like, why these industries don't do this more often. Like, you know, I mean, it worked for me. Like, I came to Vox. I'd never done journalism before. And then I did a fellowship. And now I work here. And, like, clearly that's, like, really good for Vox. But, like, well, that sounded really <laughs> full of us. It is good for Vox. Sure. No, it's great. I was just going to say, I'm so, you're, but this is, like, the perfect panel for this because we have three people who took really different routes over time. Yeah. Well, what I meant by that is like a fellowship program that produces like a worker that you hire is like good for an institution. But like the reason why you don't have more people doing things like that is because, you know, what if, you know, some other organization like basically poaches your staff, like you do all this work of training them, you invest in them and then they go work somewhere else. And like, obviously, that can be easier in like industries where they're not as substitutable later labor market 
changes. Like if you're like a librarian, I'm not sure how much like your skill set that you pick up there translates to another place and institution. And obviously they're public institutions. So like if you go from like one library to another, it's not really a loss to the place that trained you. But like, I think it's like really hard to like expect companies to kind of engage in this kind of behavior when like, you know, you could do all the work of training them and then everyone just goes to a different institution and then they get to reap the benefits of that. And so I also think that like it's worth thinking about why we're seeing some of the reasons like why we're seeing this kind of inflation in degrees is because like, you know, for a long time, like the bachelor's degree was sort of like the signaling mechanism to employers. Like I believe that a bachelor's degree confers a lot of actual value. Like I think I learned a lot of like how to do a job and like how to like think about things in college. But I also think that it's also a signal to employers like this is a person who completed a four year degree. They like got up every day. They figured out what credits they needed to complete a program. They got a grade that I think is like worth, you know, some sort of like merit. And like that sort of says something to an employer. But then as like more people are able to do bachelor's degrees, you know, obviously that confers a lot of value. But then again, it starts weakening the signal to employers too. When like 40% of your labor market, or maybe even like it, depending on what you're hiring for, 100% of people you're hiring all have a degree of similar worth to you. And then it becomes again, more indistinguishable as an employer, like, okay, well, like, how do I really judge like X person who went to University of Michigan and like X person who went to UC Berkeley, like, are they really that different? How do I tell from this degree? It becomes really opaque. And so then instead of like going like, okay, why don't I just hire someone and then like see what works out, which can be really costly to an employer, they now are kind of incentivizing people to engage in these graduate degree programs to then again, distinguish themselves, again, putting the burden on the individual to signal instead of like, I don't know, like making an employer have a better <laughs> a hiring process or like figuring out better ways to distinguish between uh, individuals and like how good they are at the job that you want them to do. And so I think that there's like a factor of that going on there as well. And also it's just like, I think it's very rational as an individual too, not just from the like the employer, if you want to distinguish yourself from your peers to decide I need to figure out some like other metric or way of proving that I'm better than other people who are going for the same job. And instead of, you know, the current journalism industry does not have a ton of like entry level jobs just like floating around where you can say, like, I'll take a $20,000 job and just work my way up. But I think this is where like, I I think the externalization and poaching issue gets a little over stated, though, because like, you're right, you know, there aren't a ton of like great entry level positions at $20,000 a year or whatever. But to get an MS in data journalism from Columbia University costs $105,000 and 510, right? On top of that, $9,058 in fees, then they estimate $45,504 in living expenses for an estimated total cost of $160,072, right? Which is going to be covered by a subsidized loan. If Vox tried to say to somebody, we will hire you to do data journalism for Vox. We won't pay you, but we will charge you $9,000 in fees. Like everybody at Vox would go be sent to jail, right? If they did that. But the economics of that for Vox, right, of applying. And now we are saying, I'm saying, like, Vox could charge you $9,000 instead of $114,000. And the economics of that for Vox would be amazing. To take, like, bright, eager journalism students and instead of paying them, charge them money. Even if some of them got poached by Politico or something like that, like, it would be great. They would be doing work output and you'd be directly getting revenue. But, like, you'd be shut down. Like overnight. I mean, would you? Yes, because, you know, you couldn't get accredited and things like that. I think people would do it. 
like if you said there's like some Vox journalism training program, like people would pay for that and they would like come and they would do journalism. Yes, but but it's illegal. That's what I'm saying. I mean, the, the thing I think the barrier here really is less the poaching issue and more that training people isn't this kind of is like gets at the idea of, OK, should, should companies just charge people to work for them? Training people isn't free. I worked with interns. I love working with interns. One reason I had to give it up was that I was taking on other responsibilities. A lot of working with interns, and I say this as a former intern, and I don't mean any you know harm to anyone I've, I've previously worked with, it's a lot of work. And often you put in a lot of work and you get something that's okay, which is great from somebody who's like 2021. 20, this is the second or third story they've ever written and it's publishable. Like, that's amazing. But, you know, the economics of the t- every hour that I put into that is not an hour that I've been able to put into, you know, somebody more experienced or something better or something that's going to get attention and have impact beyond like, oh, look, we published something. But if you were charging the interns, if you were charging the interns a hundred grand a pop. You're right. Well, you, you, you'd almost have to because we need like six editors. But that's what I mean, though. Like it would it would transform the economics of it. Right. And it's weird to like put that out into like, well, it's school, right? Or at a minimum that the schools don't have. Because so like some of the better Vox intern experiences, I think, were sort of like piped in through Northwestern's journalism school, right? Which like one of the things they do a good job of is like you pay them a lot of money and then they like arrange for you to go work for other people. I am a victim of this process and it's insane. Like I didn't realize that uh, for a while they were paying this, at least when I was in it, like employers paid the school. I paid the school tuition because it is not legal to just have people, you know, work for you. But that's one of the best journalism training institute like in just pure education terms like it's genuinely very good like it's a good intern oh, yeah, it, was great. it was the best quarter of my college experience i learned a ton because like you got to outsource it you know like right but I, we're talking about this like it's super hypothetical but it's preposterous to have this like for-profit middleman but it's not right it's it's the non-for-profit middleman standing between the student and the company somehow is reaping all the money when like the student is working the employer is training and northwestern is like what they're like they're handing out diplomas (laughs) like it's a wild business but this is like a weird like place to go because it's just like someone has to like it costs money to train someone. Like it takes someone's time. You either have to like put someone in a situation where they are being less productive in order to like share their influence with someone else. So like it has to be either like the student is paying for the training because it's a value that they are getting or it's an employer that's paying for it because they are also getting value. And then like the question is like, the intermediary is created because you want it not to be super predatory, right? You want to make sure that the person doing it is not just like some kind of person trying to extract money from you. But schools move away from not being predatory when it becomes extremely costly to provide this education. And so we no longer have a non-predatory middleman. You have like a predatory middleman in the middle of there. But again, the fundamental problem there is not that you don't need a middleman to like sort this out to make sure that students aren't just paying $20,000 to like the New York Times to just like sit in a room with like I don't know, like a top reporter and not learn anything. And then so like you obviously need to fix the fundamental underlying issue here, which is like cost of higher education is just spiraling out of control and people don't know what to do with that. I say so we're all talking about this like it's wild and hypothetical. Like this thing we're talking about exists. It's the coding, the for profit coding boot camps in Silicon Valley of like we're going to sidestep the like engineering programs where you pay X amount of money 
to get, you know, a degree. And also you have to learn a lot of English and write some papers and do some other stuff to get your like well-rounded college education. And you're just going to pay X amount. And a bunch of people are going to like put you in a room and teach you how to do web development. And you're going to get a job. And this was like the hottest thing in higher ed a few years ago because of the promise that it held. I think it's worked out okay. Like there's a reason it hasn't spread to every other industry. There also haven't been a lot of exposés lately on how it's completely riddled with flaws. To be honest, I didn't know the conversation was going this direction or I would have looked this up. Um, But my impression is it's gone more or less okay. But that is an experiment. It also hasn't really spread. Like we're not seeing like, oh, you like numbers and you don't want to write an English paper. You have a degree in something else. Like come to H&R Block and do our one-year accounting boot camp and pay us $15,000 And you'll get some on-the-job training and you'll get to learn how to be an accountant. Some of that is, like, because of professional certifications and other things. But, like, there are a lot of situations where you could imagine this becoming more of a model. And I think the more scarce the positions are, the more people are going to be willing to pay to get ahead. I mean, that's what the prices at the Columbia Journalism School are. People are paying to, like – and I know people who have done it, including people who have journalism undergrads, and still said it was worth it, which is wild to me because it's such a competitive industry. But the more competitive the industry, the greater the opportunity for predation, too. And so I I, I don't know how you get away from something like that. You know, I think I am – on one level, like, I am calling on America's – professors to have a little self-scrutiny about what they are doing because they do not think of themselves or portray themselves in like these kind of cynical terms, right? Like journalism jobs are scarce. So we have an opportunity to be rent-seeking, certifying middlemen. But like, that's what they're doing. And like, that's okay. You know, like there's a lot of like kind of grubby businesses out there. But I think a lot of them like think of themselves as like somehow like bigger than the game and like better than capitalism. Uh, They're in there with everyone else. But also like, I do think that as a society, you know, policymakers like to talk about apprenticeships. So I don't want to say that this is totally novel. And what they normally mean is like, to train people to be welders or something like that. But I think it's actually worth standing up for the like larger concept of apprenticing in society. Like when I was, um, I don't know what it was, 21 years ago now, I was an intern at Rolling Stone. And it was a thing, there was a, a middleman, as Jerusalem was saying, the American Society of Magazine Editors had this like competitive internship program where you would put in your application and they would take the people who they thought were good and they would assign you to different magazines, print magazines that were like part of the program. And it was unpaid internships, but also like they weren't charging you. It was just a thing that the magazines did as a consortium. And the internships were kind of shitty. It was closer to the Devil Wears Prada than to how I saw Vox treat its interns. Because the point was like it had to be worthwhile from the standpoint of the editors. So like there was a lot of like get people coffee, deal with their like weird fussy muffin orders. Um, I had to clean Therese's desk because he, like me, is a sloppy person, but unlike me, (laughs) had an intern who he could make clean his desk. But that being said, like I learned a lot about journalism and I didn't come out of it like (laughs) in six figures of debt. 
And just like, it's weird because like, I feel like on today's internet, somebody would write a like horrified scandal mongering piece about that internship and how like they don't pay people. And so it's exclusionary and like you're getting poppy seed muffins and like so-and-so's a jerk and you're like taking all the review CDs and you're trying to sell them at, you know, downtown record stores and stuff like that. But it's like, was less exploitative, I think than a lot of these graduate school things, right? Well, for people who are able to do it, right? Right. I mean, the issue is you have to have something to live on. If you could get a graduate plus loan to do it, though, it would be just as livable and cheaper, right? And I just think that, like, by housing the exploitation under the umbrella of a nonprofit institution, like, you're not making it go away. Right. And I feel like over the past 20 years, that's a lot of what we have done is like taken shitty, exploitative aspects of the entry level job market and like made them worse, but kind of like prettied it up by putting an education gloss on it rather than capitalist exploitation. And it doesn't I don't know. It it seems very bad to me. I mean, the idea that uh, I think we're, we're sort of Pulling back and back and back to a policy point that, as you said about it, apprenticeships is not new, but the shift in who bears the responsibility for training has gone from being, you know, maybe sort of a shared responsibility or even the responsibility of an employer of like, look, we understand you're not going to be very useful for the first year or two that you work for us, but you're going to work for us for 30 years and you're going to have a pension. And so like in the long run, you know, it's going to be fine to, um, you know, the, the economy we have now where it's much more like it's up to you to do for yourself what you can to be employable, you still need training. You know, it doesn't actually solve the problem, but it like puts it entirely on individual shoulders. And I don't know. I mean, the, the, the thing that it's, it seems like there's there has to be a way to shift the incentives for the companies because like, yeah, it's much easier. There have been places I've worked that don't hire people right out of school. They hire a lot of people who are two years out of school because somebody else has done the basically like housebreaking of teaching somebody how to like both do basic journalism things and also like an underrated thing of like how to be an adult human in an office if you've never done that before. Like, and these are places that were, you know, that I would think would describe themselves as like socially responsible. Vox is not one of them I'm thinking earlier in my career, but like they just didn't have the ability or the will to do that. Like we're going to take people fresh out of school or even who haven't gone to school at all and, and, and train them. And I don't know, like, you know, I, it feels very weird to get to the end and be like, I don't know, do we need a tax credit? Like, it, it just feels so, like, non-responsive to the scale of the societal shift we're talking about. And just to talk a little bit about the policy responses, like, that are necessary. Like, obviously, we've, we've kind of, like, alluded a couple times to, like, the high cost of college. But also, it feels like when people are talking about, like, this burden that we've put on individuals to kind of bear the cost of their training and to continuously have to pay more and more money to signal to employers that they're, like, worth hiring and in doing that, like, it creates a lot of other problems, right, where, like, people cannot afford to do other things like they are now in cities where the cost of housing is too high or they're delaying having children because they don't think they can afford it. And I think often people think that like the the quickest way to solve this is like debt forgiveness. But I think it's also like the other things are also really costly, right? Like you should just bring down the cost of housing and like you should make it cheaper to have daycare and you should create labor market changes so that people can have a kid and aren't immediately penalized and not given maternity leave or paternity leave and things like that. And I think that like often I think 
we silo off these conversations into the specific industry that we're talking about. So we're like, we're talking about student debt. So the fix to that is like the immediate thing we need to do is forgive the student debt. And like, I think there's like a lot of good arguments for potentially forgiving student debt. But like, I think the main problems people then point to when you ask them why we need to forgive this sort of debt are about other areas of human life that are really problematic, that are problematic for other reasons than our current situation with higher education. And like, you know, obviously, like I have feelings about how we should fix housing and how we should fix daycare and things like that. But it does seem interesting to me that these conversations are often very siloed off into the specific areas that we're talking about, rather than looking at them holistically as how they affect people's lives in general, whether it's around wealth building, whether it's around homeownership, whether it's around daycare and having kids or what that means for people's lives. And I think it's really important that like policymakers think about it beyond just like debt forgiveness. Like it's a bigger problem than that. I agree. Let's take a break. Do a white paper. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. All right. Our uh, paper today is North-South Displacement Effects of Environmental Regulation, the Case of Battery Recycling by Shinsuke Tanaka, Kensuke Tashima, and Eric Verhugen. This is about a subject near and dear to the heart of the weeds, uh, namely lead. And so specifically, they are looking at an air quality standard for lead whose main impact was on the battery recycling industry. People may remember I did an uh, interview on the global lead issue, and my guest there said that battery recycling is like the big sort of new source of ambient lead in the air now that it's been phased out of gasoline. So the United States adopted stricter rules. This did not make the phenomenon of battery recycling go away. And it seems like the cheap thing for people to do was to simply relocate their operations to Mexico. So there was a big surge in Mexican lead. So production increased at battery recycling plants relative to comparable industries, and birth outcomes deteriorated within two miles of those plants relative to areas slightly further away. Basically, America started exporting its pollution with, I guess, benefits for the owners of Mexican battery recycling facilities and people who like those jobs, uh, but bad implications for Mexican children. And it's a kind of a kind of a sad story. Yeah, this is a bummer of a paper with, by the way, just an example of why, I don't know, academic titles are wild. Like, I read this and I was like, I don't know what a north-south displacement is. But it really, like, it feels also very relevant to the broader climate change debate to me. The idea that, for the most part, the policies we make can have an impact in one country, but there are other countries out there doing different things with different incentives and the idea of bringing them all together onto one page is a really significant challenge. And I think like this is interesting in, you know, a, a look at a specific industry, but also what it says about international cooperation and what they call sort of the pollution haven hypothesis, which is just that, you know, industries, once regulators crack down, industries just go somewhere else that don't have those regulations. 
And one of the things that the authors note is that it's been really hard to find evidence of increased environmental standards in one country leading to pollution exporting to other countries because often it's like hard to export your pollution, right? Like it's like happening in the place that you're doing industry in and you have to just kind of like do it there because that's where the demand is. But like with batteries, like you can just ship those batteries across the border to Mexico. And so it's like a very unique place where you can see this very clearly taking place. And I think another interesting thing the authors point out is that the harm are essentially all born by mothers and their children in hospitals run by the Ministry of Health, which is like the public hospital system in Mexico. And it's like where it's often disadvantaged women who are going to those hospitals and they don't find health impacts to people who are going to private hospitals, which indicates like there's also like environmental justice concerns locally. And so like the policy change here may not just be like, you know, I don't think the takeaway is necessarily that the raising environmental standards on lead in the U.S. was just bad. I think it's also that like it has to be coupled with recognizing what's going to happen down the pollution supply chain, I guess, and how you mitigate that lower down there. Because if you can just make it so that people are not living near these battery plants, then like probably you could have avoided a lot of this environmental justice concerns that are happening to women in Mexico and their children. Well, that's also why I want to distinguish this from the climate case, right? Because there's a question as to whether this is a net harm or a net benefit to Mexico, right? Like they got more pollution, but they also got they got the industry, right? So for the United States, you say, look, the United States is a, is a wealthy country. The battery recycling industry is like not so fantastic, right? And lead pollution is really bad. So and we don't have that much lead pollution. So eliminating the biggest remaining source of lead toxins has a high value and a low cost to us. Then Mexico might reach a different conclusion, right? And one conclusion you might reach is, no, this is like a really concentrated harm on low-income Mexican women. But then Mexico is like an autonomous government. Like, they could raise their own pollution standards, and maybe they they should, right? And if some country somewhere decides that, like, they want the battery recycling industry, that the juice is worth the squeeze to them, that's, you know, plausible, I think. There's all kinds of industrial activity that is both economically valuable and toxic. And it's not crazy for different countries at different levels of development to reach different judgments about it. The issue with climate is that the harms are global, right? So that if you push the climate pollution out of one country and into another, you actually haven't accomplished anything. Whereas like moving the battery recycling lead from one place to another actually does change the situation. And like you could achieve a more sort of efficient equilibrium, right? Like London during the Industrial Revolution was like famously toxic, like literally toxic environment. But it was still like that was good for the UK as a whole to be the first industrializing country. Like they benefited from that situation and then we kind of move on. So you can tell a story about this displacement where it's fine, uh, whereas you can't with like climate displacement, right? For sort of like, it's good for your little charts as a world leader, like, aha, I made the emissions go down. But like the atmospheric carbon dioxide is a purely global phenomenon and it's not important at all where it is. And unless you take steps that reduce global emissions, like you're not actually tackling the problem at all. You're just like moving numbers around. 
Yeah, I also think very frequently just about like Americans trying to get rid of toxic waste in general and like how fraught that entire conversation is. Like, I don't know if people like realize this, but like one of the biggest topics in like the Nevada presidential primary is about Yucca Mountain, which is like the federal government wanted to put nuclear waste in Yucca Mountain and like drill really deep down and just like shove it down there because they don't know what to do with it. And like this is like a live issue because like there are multiple places, but like in South Carolina, which is also an important primary state, there's like this like nuclear plant that's like been there and has like a lot of waste and they don't know what to do with it. But like Nevadans don't want the nuclear waste. They don't want it in their mountain and they don't like the idea of it being there. And so like every presidential primary, all the candidates get together and pledge never to put the waste there. But the mountain is the only viable current solution for it <laughs> and so like and this is a larger problem here of like what to do with this kind of like environmental waste and like people in america and in like these higher standard living countries do not seem to be willing to like figure out a thing to do with it and so like in the future it feels like it's going to continue to be exported to the global south and like figuring out like what policies need to be changed a to like make it possible for it not to harm people when you like get rid of this nuclear waste like it's not clear to me if this is actually creating harms or like these are just people who are like scared of the idea of nuclear waste coming, but there's not any documented issue with it if it's like deep in the mountain. But like it's going to become more and more of a live wire issue as these countries in the global south have more of a voice in international affairs to either reject it or their people get mad because, as Matt said, maybe the government decides that it is economically feasible and they're willing to take on that cost if they get paid and compensated appropriately. But the individual people on the ground may get upset about it. So I, I think that that's going to become like this paper is like highlighting something that's going to become more and more of an issue in the future. I think also the other thing I'd say is like the nuclear power and the battery recycling comparison is interesting because they're both things that have an environmental upside as well. Like we we want to, that's that's one thing that was interesting to me about this paper is I was like, oh, battery is like recycling is a good thing, right? Like we don't want to be leaking all these chemicals into the ground. It seems like a good thing to do. And I was not aware of all of the, the harmful effects of that industry qua industry. And in the same way, like we need more power sources that don't generate emissions. We will have to figure out what to do with the question of nuclear waste if that's a, a path we want to walk down. And so I think the multifaceted complexity here, I think, is something that's that's really interesting about both of those cases and that makes this even harder for governments to think through and figure out. So I mentioned this, you know, before we started, but there was like a famous uh, early Larry Summers career controversy where he wrote a memo for the World Bank saying that certain countries were under polluted and that, you know, naturally pollution ought to migrate to the lowest wage countries. It speaks to some of these kind of points, right? That like a different way of thinking about this would be to say, okay, nuclear power generates zero carbon electricity, which is good, but also people are averse to having the waste stored near them. But there are a lot of people in the world, right? There are a lot of people in the world who are much poorer than the good people of the state of Nevada, right? And for a sum of money that the people of Nevada might think is unimportant, as financial compensation for sitting near the nuclear waste might be a total game changer for a much poorer country, right? And we stigmatize that kind of like explicit pollution reallocation. But if rich countries burned far less fossil fuels and relied more on nuclear energy, and then they paid poorer countries to house the nuclear waste pending some future miracle, you know, uh, waste recycling technology, that would be a much cleaner, richer, fundamentally more equitable world. But you would have to go 
you would have to work around that taboo. Whereas this battery thing, it happens implicitly, right? The United States is like, we want to get the batteries recycled, but we don't want all this lead in the air. So we're going to make a rule and then we're not going to ask too many questions about like, how did all those batteries get recycled? Ah, it must be that they found a new cleaner way to do it. But like, no, they just shipped them to Mexico, right? And if you had done that explicitly with like financial compensation, to Mexico, it would have been seen as like horrible, like we're exploiting Mexican poverty by paying them to take our battery lead. But we did the same thing and like didn't pay them to take our battery lead. They just got it, right? And, you know, it's hard, right? Like the global inequality picture is so severe. It's like hard to get your get your mind around what might seem like a tolerable risk to people who are, you know, living on incomes of $1,000 a year or less. But like there are tons of people in that situation in the world. And it's very relevant when you think about these international, you know, environmental development trade-offs. Well, in the same vein, and I think even more dire than the earlier conversation we were having, I think there's this problem of informed consent with these types of things, right? Because like, I mean, obviously, you could have governments just say, like, we're willing to take on that risk. But like the people who make up governments are usually like elite actors in those spaces that are likely not going to be bearing the brunt of, I don't know, lead pollution or whatever it is, or the risk of living near other types of environmental waste. And like, I don't know if you can say that, like, is it like 100 percent of people need to like opt in to being okay living next to waste and like willing to accept $100? And then like, how do you even conduct that sort of survey before you do that? And if only 75% say yes, or like if 25% say yes, like, do we then facilitate people being able to like immigrate to other places? I don't know. And also it's like, of course, like we just have this whole conversation about student loan debt and people not understanding what they're getting into with graduate student loans. I think it's a lot more dire of a situation with people not understanding what they're getting into with like the harms that could happen to future children that they do not have yet and they do not understand that could create issues for them. And of course, those children themselves cannot opt into like the birth defects that they will have. So, I mean, I like get the point and I think it's like obviously the case that it's better than the status quo where like people were not directly compensated, but they still have those risks and they were forced to bear them in Mexico. But like an explicit agreement would have to like take into the fact that, you know, a lot of people do not have the ability to inform consent around these types of things. And then the people who are going to be harmed in the future have absolutely no ability to engage in these uh, conversations because they're not born yet. That is true. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the the whole history of lead is like a story of facts being occluded from people over over the years. I mean, I've written about this a bunch of times, but it was like um, the, the, the original story of this, of putting lead in gasoline was, you know, they tried to find a top scientist on gasified lead to advise them on whether it was a good idea. So they found a guy who worked on it as a chemical weapon in World War One, And he told them, no, don't put lead in gasoline. This is something I worked on as a chemical weapon in World War One." And then they were like, eh, we'll do it anyway. You know, and like they got the Commerce Department under uh, Herbert Hoover to like put out a report about how this was awesome. But, you know, there were like British medical journals going back to the 1880s being like lead seems to be doing severe neurological damage to people. And it just has always like trundled forward based on the fact that like most people don't have this information at hand. And precisely the people, you know, the, the global poor who in theory, could be um, 
participating in these kind of trade-offs are also the people who are least likely to have access to like detailed information about health risks and what the actual state of scientific knowledge of these things is. So it's very it's very hard to move from like an abstract like there should be a win-win arrangement available here to something that's like actually good and benefits people. Man, people don't include that in uh, Herbert Hoover biographies. I'd like to I'd like that to be remedied in the future. I only learn about what uh, the Great Depression, not the lead problems. There's all these like revisionist. Actually, Herbert Hoover was good takes floating around and I want them to gain dominance so then I can like bring the hammer down. Terrible. He did terrible things on traffic planning. Time machine, Herbert Hoover. Wow, we've we're, we're, we've landed somewhere here. We all right. I guess we're uh, we're getting to the the punchy stage of the episode. Should probably uh, wrap things up before uh, before we lose everybody. Um, so thanks as usual to our sponsors. Thanks to Ness Smith Savadov for producing. Uh, and the weeds will be back on Friday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.